0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce The Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon.
1: Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. So recently, we decided to do a couple, a few, a bunch of episodes where we discuss a particular album. And the decision was made that I would choose the first one and Doug would choose the second one. So the first one was Miles Davis' Bitches Brew, and I'll put a wink in the show notes. Wait, Doug is raising his hand. He wants to say something.
0: The trick of this was that it's an album that one of us knows well and the other one does not know well.
1: Exactly. That's, That's important to know. Yes, because we have discussed other albums that we both know well. So it was Doug's choice today, and Doug picked... Well, if you've seen the title of the episode, you know what Doug picked. But if you haven't looked... Frank Zappa's Shake Your Booty. It was tough to find an album that
0: you didn't already know well that I liked. So I had to kind of go out on a limb with the Frank. The other problem with picking a Frank Zappa album, everybody asks, I would like to know what this is about Frank Zappa. I would like for you to recommend the one record I need to listen to. There's no such thing in the Zappaverse that you can't just you, you can't just have one record and say, "Oh, that's it." What I usually tell people is if you know anything by Frank at all, go listen to the rest of that record, of that song, yeah. and then move out from there. But no one can tell you how to go because he is expansive. His the way he writes and the way he performs and the way he records very different from year to year, album to album even. So, but anyway, the reason I picked Shake Your Booty is I knew you had some familiarity with it, but also it's Frank's best-selling record. Yes. Sold more than 2 million copies. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's well-streamed as well.
1: So it's kind of amazing that we got to episode 273 without doing a Frank Zappa episode. And I've been asking you for years because I know you're a Zappa... Zappahead. What do they called? Zappophile. Zappophile. And you never wanted to. And so finally we get to talk about Frank Zappa.
0: Well, I'll tell you why I don't want to, is because I don't know everything there is to know. I'm not a definitive expert on Frank Zappa and the Mothers. I know the records that I like, and I followed his history a little bit. But most of the time, I, when I like a record, I don't f- try to figure it out too much. I just kind of like to listen to it. As I know we will get into, his lyrics get him into trouble. And after a little while, I just stopped paying attention to the lyrics. I really don't care what the words are. I don't think he cared what the words were. One of the things that he has said, and I've read read in interviews and seen it in his book, is he says people expect the convention of singing in the music that they like to listen to. So if I've got to have words, I might as well just write about whatever I want to write about. I'm not going to waste my time writing love songs or anything like that. That's Other people are taking care of that. I want to write about the things that I know and I think and I feel. And so you get sometimes interesting lyrics, m- most of the time juvenile lyrics and a lot of the times offensive lyrics. But it doesn't the lyrics aren't there to make the music
1: better. Right. So you said that you picked a record that I might know a little bit and it's true. It's the only Frank Zappa album that I ever bought and I bought it after it came out because a couple of songs were getting a lot of airplay. Dance and Fool was all over the radio. And the other one, I think, is, I'm looking at the list here, Baby Snakes also got a lot of airplay. So I remember that, and I remember buying the record, and I remember being perplexed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's a lot to be perplexed about, and that's one of the things I enjoyed about it. I remember when it first came out, I was working in college at a TV TV studio, student-run TV studio, and we had a lot of free time on our hands, and one of the guys ran down to the... The, the record store picked it up as soon as it came out, and we had it It was our soundtrack for about a week and a half until I eventually bought it myself. And you, you're trying to piece this thing together that, on the one hand, parodies a lot of current music at the time that does some innovative recording. This was, a, this was an album that most of, actually all of the basic tracks were recorded live. And then later they went into the studio, and as he notes in the liner notes, there are lots of overdubs. There are very few songs with no overdubs, um, but most of them have lots of overdubs. This is a very interesting record, and it was fun to listen to and try to figure out. Now, I've given up on trying to figure out what some of these songs are about. It's pretty obvious what uh, <laughs> what "Flakes" is about, and what "Dancing Fool" is about, and what other songs are about. "Jewish Princess." pretty obvious what that's about. I don't even know if we should even talk about that song. It's so it's so dis, distasteful.
1: Well, that's actually interesting. So I, I grew up in Queens, New York, and the idea of the open quote Jewish American princess was relatively common. I lived next to a neighborhood of mostly Jewish people. A lot of my friends were Jewish, and a lot of them even called themselves Jewish American princesses. So I'm surprised that he just says Jewish princess and doesn't include the American. You couldn't release a song like that today with what he says, with some of the lyrics. And and let's just get to the lyrics right away, because as I, cause when you said that we were going to do this, you said, make sure you pay attention to the lyrics. And, and it was painful. It was embarrassing. And I was thinking, going back to 1979 when this came out, this is not the kind of record that I would put on if I'm with a chick, using a contemporaneous word that I would no <laughs> longer use. It's not... It's, it's like... This would be like the biggest red flag, a guy who's listening to this with a chick, right? With some of the lyrics that that are just...
0: You listen to this in the boys' club in the treehouse. This is definitely a, <laughs> you know, a lot of Zappa stuff is like that, too. In fact, I don't... I remember I re- the first time I ever met a girl who had listened to Frank Zappa, she said to me, mentioning one of his highly sexualized songs, she said, have you heard this song? And I'm like, yeah... I've heard it have you heard it because I just was amazed that a girl had actually listened to Frank Zappa. Um so it's 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 boy music especially because of the words. The words are so juvenile and stupid. Um the music is overly sophisticated but the words are just Exactly,
1: dumb. that's the thing. The the music is a level of sophistication that's rare in rock music. Not only the composition, but the arrangement. He's often got a very large band with all sorts of things going on. As you say, this stuff is all recorded live with overdubs, which is an interesting process to record new songs live and then overdub them, rather than record them in the studio. The Grateful Dead did that for their first album, because they were essentially a live band, and they did live recordings and overdub, but then they didn't do it after that, except for live albums, obviously. But you listen to the musicianship, and it's stunning. Now, we talked last year sometime about the Frank Zappa documentary that I saw. And I was very impressed to see all these tapes of everything he ever recorded, plus all these tapes of other musicians. And he was like, his his musical obsession was really interesting. It's like, he didn't want it, but he could have been so much bigger if he hired a lyricist. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose. I- you know, imagine Bernie <laughs> Topin writing for Frank Zappa's music.
0: Yeah, it, it, it wouldn't be the same, that's for sure. But it would, it might have been something amazing. On the other hand, he just refused to compromise. He just yeah. You know, he just did not want to do that. He he didn't want to do those kinds of songs. Pretty much, he, he wanted to be a composer. He is a composer. He thought of himself as a composer. And he wrote music all the time. And the only way he would get to hear this music is if he got a band to play it. That's the only way he could hear it. He taught himself how to, how to orchestrate. He went to the library and read books about it. He didn't go to college or anything like that. He learned how to do it at home. And the, his main impetus was... This is this is an interesting sound that I've just created. I want to hear how it sounds like, and so that's why he put the band together. It's too expensive to go around trying to put an orchestra together. You know, you got to pay for rehearsal time. You got to pay for forty, fifty people. You got to pay for lunch. You got to pay for everything. So he just couldn't get orchestras to do his stuff. So having a little five, six, seven piece rock band, talented rock band, put some of this complicated stuff together. Um, is is the only way to go also i want to mention too that the recording studio becomes an instrument in a, in, a, in a recording like this because he takes things there are two songs on the on the record where he takes two disparate performances and lays them on top of each other uh, there's an instrumental song called rubber shirt which is essentially a bass solo on top of uh, some drumming they are from different years different locations They never played, the the, the two musicians did not play together on that song. And it's a fascinating um, way of putting music together. There's also many times, this is the first time he did it, um, where he took a guitar solo from a completely different song and a completely different performance and put it on top of something else. And it's magnificent. It's that last piece of music on on the record called Yo Mama, which is an 11 minute uh, guitar solo, essentially.
1: 12 and a half minutes. 12 and
0: a half minutes. It's a big yeah. one. It's a big one. And it's not even part of that song. It's from some other song, but it fits so well. It's an yeah. amazing thing. And so things like that make the record exceptional. So many bands would would be in the studio and try to make something that sounded spontaneous and things like that. And he was going beyond that by I don't know, I don't know what you call. It. He had a word for it. I think it was called Xenocrity, Zeno, chronic z- 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 Xenocracy? Xenocracy, that's the word. Where he would take these disparate performances and put them together and create the one thing. And it it's it really is a terrific sound. If you like it, things in eleven four, nine seven, things
1: right, like that. Right. It's yeah. <laughs> but it's 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 the kind of music that the people who get into it are already a bit I don't want to say weird but are are open to non-standard music not 4/4 not love songs that sort of thing so it's a self-selecting group of people that kind of want more of the weirdness and it's not like all oh, the music is weird there are a lot of you know basic rock songs with guitar solos and stuff but it's an acquired taste but it's even more than that it's like You know, the British, they have this thing called marmite that you spread on bread. It's made from yeast. And the expression, something is marmite, is like you either love it or you hate it. And I think Frank Zappa's in that category. And again, it's kind of unfortunate because he could have been so much bigger, but he didn't want to be bigger. I want to read Robert Kriskow's review from... 1979, when the record came out, I'm assuming this was from the Village Voice, he he puts all these reviews on his website without any citations. If this be social satire, in quotes, how come its sole targets are ordinary citizens whose weirdnesses happen to diverge from those of the retentive gent at the control board? Or are we to read his new fixation on buggery as an indication of approval? <laughs> Makes you wonder whether his primo guitar solo on Yo Mama and those unique as they used to be rhythms and textures are as arid spiritually as he is. As if there were any question after all these years and he gives it a C. Wow. Chris Kyle's weird. He's, he's, I could never nail his taste.
0: He liked some things that I liked and he hated some things that I liked and didn't care for this that much. I think he might have seen Frank as, as pretentious.
1: But I think Zappa embraced the pretentiousness. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think I, he wanted to be pretentious, and that was part of his persona. Yeah, that's part of the shtick, I think, is that he does know better.
0: And that's why he's writing about these, you know, it's it comes and goes. Because when he writes about, the things that he writes about are things that he knows about. He knows about... Sex on, on, a, on a road, on the road with a rock band. He writes a lot about that. That's what his life is. You know, there's a, there's a song on another album that it talks about a dog looking at a piano because that's that's what is going on at his house. Um, you know, things <laughs> like that. Um, he writes about furniture because he's staring there looking at a piece of furniture. It's, it's, it's not. It's not difficult to understand why he writes about what he does, and I, the the fact that people make a big deal out of it when it's so obviously awful, some of, I mean the, some of the words sound like they were just sketched out before before they started recording, they're really bad. On the other hand, some are brilliant. I, I think "City of Tiny Lights," which I believe is a song about condemning Los Angeles, I believe. I think that's a brilliant song. It, the the melody is great. Adrian Ballou sings lead on it. It's an incredibly cool song that could have been a big, I don't know, college radio hit or something, but I don't ever remember playing it on the radio before, but it's a really great song. And this was done just before Baloo went and joined King Crimson, right? He had, Baloo was in this band, and then I think he might have toured with Talking Heads, and then he joined King Crimson.
1: He toured with Talking Heads, what, 80, 81, on that big tour and then he joined King Crimson for a few years and now he's living off that reputation as having been in King Crimson doing these summer guitar things for young guitarists who want to hang out with the stars and doing he's touring like small venues with Jerry Harrison of Talking Heads playing I guess Talking Heads tunes and King Crimson tunes and he's he's a weird guitarist he was really good and then he just kind of lost his way he could have been a good guitarist with a good band or something, but I, I think for everything I've read about uh, King Crimson suggested he was not an easy person to work with. Then again, neither was Robert Fripp.
0: It's funny because I saw Adrian Blue with his band, the Bears, years ago, and they were really good. If they had stayed together and done more of that sort of thing, it would have been great. They also perform on his early solo album, so you can get an idea of what they sounded like. But you can also tell. Um, from his early solo albums, how much of an influence Frank Zappa was on him, because he also writes some silly songs. They're not as, they're not as juvenile as, as Frank's lyrics, but some of them are pretty silly.
1: Yeah. I'm just looking at Adrian Ballou's Wikipedia page, and not his own albums, but the, People he's worked with, he's worked with Zappa, David Bowie, Talking Heads, King Crimson, Herbie Hancock, Ryuichi Sakamoto, Joe Cocker, Jean-Michel Jarre, Laurie Anderson, Sidney Lauper, Paul Simon, the Bears, Mike Oldfield, Nine Inch Nails, and so on, and so on, and so on. So as a side man, he's excellent.
0: Yeah, that sound was desirable for a number of years. In fact, I'll bet all of those side jobs happened in the uh, in that chunk of the 80s there. But, uh, yeah. Uh, Speaking of people who were in Zappa's band and later went on and did other things, uh, the drummer and the bass player, Terry Bozio and Patrick Ahern, when they left the band, they formed a band called Missing Persons. And they had several, Ah, they had several FM rock radio hits. So they weren't, you know, they knew that they knew what they were doing um, when they did that.
1: Terry Bozio was on 26 albums with Zappa and seven albums with Missing Persons. Yeah. And, I had forgotten about Missing Persons.
0: And Terry Bozio is is actually a, a well-regarded drummer. Yeah. A very well-regarded drummer.
1: Well, he too has a whole list of credits as a sideman in other bands. Not as many well-known, but I see Duran Duran, I see Robbie Robertson. So he's been around too. And, and I think Zappa worked with a lot of studio musicians, didn't he? Uh, live on tour. People who
0: left his band would do a lot of studio work. George Duke was was part of the band for a while. Um, Steve Vai, the guitar player Steve Vai, yeah. did his own stuff, played with a lot of other people. So
1: yeah, a lot of, but
0: he liked to play with aces.
1: It was Zappa University. Yeah, and but he, it was important
0: that he have the cream of the cream because they had to be able to read music for one thing they and they had to be they had to be able to improvise and they had to be able to take commands from him at the drop of a hat if he said all right do it reggae then the band would do it reggae i mean that's the sort of th- the behavior that he wanted he wanted the the orchestra to be his instrument
1: yeah he was a conductor yeah 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 exactly yeah, yeah. so in that documentary there was some live footage of him and the band playing. I don't remember when it was from. I don't think there's a lot of live footage of Zappa performing.
0: There really isn't. There isn't a lot.
1: There, there are plenty of live albums since he taped everything. And they've been trickling out since he died in, was it 93, 95? Something like that?
0: Yeah, somewhere um, around that.
1: Didn't you have an next track pick last year for the Halloween 77 Palladium show?
0: Yes, yeah. From
1: which at least one or two songs on this album were taken. Jewish Princess. That's the only one, yeah. No, it was taken on October 30th, but he did a run around Halloween in 77. I remember that. I didn't go see it, but I remember him doing three or four nights around Halloween.
0: Halloween was a big night for him. He would always play somewhere. uh Halloween and Mother's Day
1: were the two big days for of him. Of course, because the mothers of invention. Right. He wasn't very popular on Valentine's Day, I assume. Probably not. Well, I
0: don't know what he did on Valentine's (laughs) Day. The great thing about some of his live albums is that you hear different versions of same songs, which I always thought was great because, you know, it just shows the diversity of the different bands that he was in. Sometimes, I mean, there were some instrumentals that you had to play. You know, they they had to go a certain way. But other songs, he just changed them all up and did them differently again. And that's what's fun about having all the live albums that he's put out.
1: Yeah, I'm just looking on Apple Music, and it looks like in the past few years there were about 20 live albums. Let's see, 10 going back to 2016. There's about 40 live albums on Apple Music, and a bunch of them in the last in recent years. So there's Road Tapes. There's the You Can't Do That On Stage Anymore series. Here's Zappa in New York Live 40th Anniversary. So that would be the Halloween one, right?
0: Um, no that one is Zappa in New York that is the name of the record and that's just uh, uh one of the um uh, one of the big bands that he had that got recorded. Oh
1: okay so it wasn't the Halloween show. It's a five there's a five disc set here. Ooh it says it was released on pick. October 29, 1977. So he would have been hanging out in New York and promoting this album in that Palladium show or maybe premiering the music in that Palladium show. Sure. Um, I kind of like Shut Up and Play Your Guitar because <laughs> there's no lyrics.
0: It kind of came, yeah, I, I, that's why he put it out, I think. It's like, let's hear you <laughs> Shut Up and Play Your Guitar. Exactly. <laughs> and that came out uh, just shortly after this record, I think. After, And I remember when they all, this the Shut Up and Play Your Guitar, Son of Shut Up and Play Your Guitar, and The Return of, of Shut Up and Play Your Guitar, I believe was the name of the three albums. They're now packaged as one thing, but... At the time, it was three separate records. And that was also fun to listen to, but not for everybody. Mm. It's not, you know, now you see what he means when he says people want to hear words in their songs, because some of these songs are very strange. And the solos, out of context, and you don't really understand where they're coming from. But some of the stuff on them is really brilliant and fun to listen to, challenging to listen
1: to. So in 1982, all three volumes were released as a, I guess, well, it's not very long, 106 minutes. So they were, I guess, they were pretty short each one. So they were released as a two CD set. Another album that was relatively popular, which I didn't own, but I remember it being popular at the time, was Joe's Garage.
0: Yeah, there were three versions of that.
1: I don't remember that being as childish.
0: Well, I think part of the pro- part of the problem, part of the reason, is that it's a it's a it's an opera, isn't it? Isn't it a continu isn't it a st- Yeah,
1: it's a concept yeah. album, yeah. And or an operette or something. like yeah. that,
0: whatever he would do. And I, to be honest with you, I'm not that familiar with a lot of that music. again I'm a Zappa fan, but I don't care for Joe's Garage because it's a little too slick and it's a little too purposeful. For the same reason I don't like Two Hundred Motels, which is an earlier album, which is an earlier concept album, which attempts to like tell a story and I don't Never mind that. Just do the individual songs. I like the individual songs or the little suites. Yeah. Even if you can sit now yeah. I, 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 this album that we're talking about, Shake Your Booty, the first, it was originally four sides, and you kind of get that feel if you listen all the way through it. But really the the side one is is nonstop and you have to listen to the whole thing, really, because it's a suite. Same thing for the last side. The second and third sides are kind of broken up with different kinds of music and there's stops and starts. But the first side and the mm-hmm. last side are continuous. And, you, you know, you you want to feel like you're there at a live show for those. And they're actually, you can hear the crowd occasionally. You know, at the end, yeah. he introduces yeah. the band and you hear the applause. In the beginning, yeah. you hear, yeah. in some parts of uh, of some songs, when it's quiet, you can hear that they're in a large arena, a large auditorium, wherever they are.
1: Because they couldn't, they couldn't get the bleed out of the sound. Right. And it's, and it sounds kind of cool though. The, it conceptually,
0: I think it makes the album bigger because it's, it's, it's sort of like bookended by these live performances. And then there's all this kind of crazy stuff in between, but you don't, I don't think you get that sense of it on when you listen to it continuously. Like I have the CD, it's one CD, um, it's not. It's not two.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's seventy one minutes and forty seconds, so it just fits on a CD. Whereas on the LP, they were actually short sides. Side four is about what seventeen minutes.
0: But it sounds good. That's the great so, thing yeah. about having short, you know, having short LP sides is because you can get a little more fidelity out of those grooves. So I think that had a reason to do with
1: it. Yes, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Well, I guess we're going to agree that the lyrics are stupid and the music is cool, and I won't find myself listening to this often. But if there could be an AI filter to, like, get rid of the lyrics on some of these songs, you know, not just to shut up and play guitar. It's kind of a shame. He was a musical genius, writing rock and jazz and...
0: Avant-garde.
1: Ragtime, bebop, all sorts. He's got every kind of rhythm, plus classical music. Kind of a shame. All right, should we do next tracks? Please. My next track pick has a somewhat tenuous link to this album. As I often do, I pick an album. I'm listening to my personal radio station on Apple Music, and a song comes up. It's, ooh, I haven't heard this album for a while. And then I'll put the album on, listen to it a dozen times. So the latest one is Genesis's 1976 Wind and Wuthering. Yes, Doug is nodding in approval there. This was the album where I discovered Genesis. Now, this was the second album they released in 1976. Trick of the Tail" came out in the beginning of the year, and this came out in the last days of December. Peter Gabriel had left the band in 1975 after The Lamb Lies down on Broadway, and the band was kind of in flux. And they didn't know whether they were going to go on, or maybe they should just be an instrumental band, because Phil Collins was really into that sort of you know music. He was a drummer, right? And then they started writing some songs and recording. There was a time when they put an ad in the music press looking for a lead singer for a Genesis-like band. And they had hundreds of people who came, a lot of them wearing like capes and masks like Peter Gabriel did on stage. And they're like, no, we don't want Peter Gabriel. We want something new. And they convinced Phil Collins to try singing one of the songs. And they liked it so much that he stayed a singer. Now, his worry was that, well, you can't sing and play the drums the way he does, right? His drums, it's not like when you see Von Helm in The Last Waltz, you know. It's just like 4-4 four, four basic drumming. His drumming's very creative. So they found a wonderful drummer, Chester Thompson, who had been in Zappa's band. And Chester Thompson, I don't know how long he played with them, but for quite a few years. Now, these two albums from 1976, this was the period before Steve Hackett left. And then came the album, and then there were three. And that changed, and they kind of moved into the poppier side of Genesis. You can hear it here in some of the songs, particularly... Your Own Special Way, which is a Mike Rutherford song, which is a total pop. Blood on the Rooftops, which is a beautiful song. Afterglow, which was Tony Banks' song. You can hear the pop coming, but there's also three instrumental tracks. What Gorilla... Unquiet Slumbers for Sleepers in That Quiet Earth. And there had been some instrumental tracks on Trick of the Tail that were really popular. If you listen to the Seconds Out live album from 1978, you'll see that in the beginning and in the end, they've got these suites of uh, instrumental stuff. One of them is Dance on a Volcano, which I think closes. So this was really like the, the core time of the Phil Collins genesis. And it showed that he was an extraordinary vocalist. Uh, I saw them live in 78, and the one concert where Peter Gabriel came on for an encore at Madison Square Garden in July 1978, and that was a wonderful show. I really have a, a special place in my heart for the Seconds Out live album and for these two albums, Trick of the Tail and this one, Wind and Weathering. Doug, what have you got?
0: You know, we've been doing this podcast for so long, I hope nobody faults me for picking an album that I may have picked before, but I honestly haven't listened to this in a long time. I, I was reminded of the Jay Giles band, Live Full House. When somebody I follow on social media tweeted a, a recent record shop haul, and that was one of the records, and that was the one they were happiest that they got. And I don't blame them. When this Jay Giles Band album came out in the early 70s, I don't think there was a person I knew that didn't like it. The geeks liked it. The motorheads liked it. The dweebs liked it. The, the band guys liked it. Everybody liked this record. And it's a funny thing, too, because uh, it's it's only about a half an hour long. And it's the J. Giles Band recorded at the Cinderella Ballroom in Detroit. Now, you might say to yourself, but they're a Boston band. Why wouldn't they record themselves at a Boston venue? But they had a huge following in Detroit, and the audience was primed this night or however many performances it took. They do a bunch of their songs from their studio albums. They do a a great version of Serves Right to Suffer by John Lee Hooker opens with, first I look at the purse. I mean, it's just, it's it's nonstop great R&B from the Jay Giles Band. And thinking about this album also made me realize that I didn't buy any of the early Jay Giles Band studio albums, but I did buy this record because I never thought their studio stuff sounded as good as the live. So I spent my money elsewhere because that's how you manage your music budget. The Jay Giles Band, live, full house, is my next track. This was episode number 273 of The Next Track. Thank you for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. And we hope you'll support The Next Track by making a regular donation via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, so we really depend on the listener support of our Patreon patrons. keeps us going. Visit Patreon.com slash The Next Track. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thank you again. We'll talk to you next time.